1: Hi, it's Allison, and we're back this week with the second chat in our series of year-end conversations about 2021 and the world of politics. And for this series, we've been bringing you the voices of some of the Post's best political reporters. And this week, we're doing that again. Today's chat will be led by the great Cleve Woodson, Washington Post White House reporter. Hi, Cleve. How are you today?
2: I'm I'm doing okay. I'm apparently the only one on this on this call who's not wearing pajamas, so that's nice, although I'm Wearing a tie, a sport coat, and <laughs> pajama bottoms, which is probably wording out everybody at home or <laughs> in the newsroom. But I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm comfortable.
1: That's great. Well, from what I can see, the top half of you looks looks excellent. Very, very professional.
2: Only half that matters.
1: <laughs> All right, Cleveland. I will hand this off to you and the other reporters joining you today.
2: All right. We're here with Philip Bump, the national correspondent for The Washington Post, and with Eugene Scott, uh, a national political reporter for The
3: Post. Phil, where are you? I see your room raider set up on the Zoom. Where are you reporting from? This actually isn't my room raider. My room raider is slightly adjusted to the side so you can see the big scoreboard I have behind me in my office. I mean, I'm in my office in my, in my house. I've, it's almost certain that I will have a child or dog interrupt at some point, so I will beg your forgiveness beforehand for that. Yeah, we call those Easter eggs. Uh, do you have sure. a room raider score, by the way? I'm proud to say I have a, I have a 10 out of 10 from room raider, mostly because of the scoreboard, yeah.
2: Oh, fancy,
3: fancy. Yeah. Eugene,
2: where are you? I won't, I won't ask about your Room Raider score, unless you want to divulge. So,
0: uh, fun fact, I actually have two Room Raider scores. I have a, a 10 out of 10, like Philip, which is actually not where I am, but actually in a corner in, my, in the room, my living room. And then I have a 9 out of a 10 at my partner's house. And so we are going to have to fix that. And uh, I'm currently in my
2: living room in downtown D.C., what was the nine for? What did you lose points for? Is this too tragic to talk about? It might be.
0: No, no, it's it's worth worth uh, sharing for anyone out there who wants some tips. So both locations, I just have artwork in the background. And I think my artwork is far more interesting than his. And that's why I got one point higher. I mean, it's, I just think that's just the truth. So yeah, we'll, we'll fix that. But you're probably
2: losing partner points as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's more important we do a good by the post than our partners.
3: That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Exactly. All right. Well, I won't say any more relationship ending stuff. I will talk about Biden's first year of his presidency. I think that we can all agree that when Biden came in, the emphasis was on fixing the pandemic, mitigating the pandemic, getting us past this. And Phil, I, I sort of want to direct this to you, even though I know reporters hate prognosticating and having a crystal ball and all of that stuff. But what do you think and Eugene, you can jump in too, but but Phil, what do you what do you think needs to be the focus next? Or or what do you think Biden is gearing up to tackle after this
3: tumultuous year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been sort of fascinating to watch. Obviously, he ran very heavily on the pandemic for obvious reasons, but it's been sort of fascinating to watch the ways in which he has not sort of embraced a response to the pandemic that one might have assumed. Like, he, you know, there's this moment from this week, which I think will become sort of infamous online, in which the you know White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki sort of scoffed at the idea that Americans should have rapid tests at home. Why not just make them free and
1: give them out and have them available everywhere? Should we just send one to every American? Maybe. Then, then what ha- then what happens if you if every American has one test? How much does that cost? And then what happens after that? I know. All I know is that other
3: countries... It's like, that's something that's been said for months. Like Experts are saying, yeah, absolutely. Everyone should have access to cheap or free at-home tests, that there should be masks. You know, there was this proposal under the Trump administration to potentially send masks to people. The Biden administration did nothing with that. You know, there certainly seems to have been at the outset of the year this sense that, okay, we'll get everyone vaccinated. The vaccines are in hand. We'll scale that up and this whole thing will be taken care of. Then we had Delta emerge. Now we have new variants emerge, you know, and it's not really clear what happens moving forward. And it does seem as though to some extent the administration has been caught flat footed, But of course, it's important to also recognize the role of partisanship here, that what we're seeing is not only that Republicans are more hesitant to get vaccinated, which of course allows the virus to spread more easily, but it is actually Republican places, even in blue states, that at this point are seeing higher case totals as well. And so there is this weird element, Kaiser Family Foundation does polling on it, and they find that partisanship is now the strongest indicator of whether or not someone has been uh, vaccinated, which is a, a remarkable thing. But it also means that Joe Biden's presidency, to the extent that that it hinges on COVID also hinges on Republican obstinance about vaccination, which, of course, isn't universal. Most Republicans have been vaccinated, but it means that it is to some extent out of his hands and a partisan issue itself, which, of course, is problematic for the administration. Eugene, I, I wonder if you can weigh in on one particular aspect of that. And we, we've we
2: talked about this before. When, when Biden was running, what Biden said was, I am the candidate that is most likely to unite the country, to bring everybody together, one that can, you know, get over these partisan divides. But as Phil just said, the greatest predictor of whether somebody is vaccinated is, you know, the political party that they're affiliated with. Do you think this is a test that Biden can, can conquer or is this something that nobody in American politics can get over?
0: You know, Cleve, if anyone in American politics is capable of uniting this incredibly divisive country, they should probably stand up because uh, we have no idea who can do that at this point, despite, as you noted, the president campaigning on uh, his ability to do that. And if you recall, that was one of the biggest criticisms of him from those on the left. There was this idea that Biden was from A time that had passed and seemed to be incredibly unaware of the reality of the division that currently existed, you know, during the end of the Trump administration. And as Philip noted, has manifested in how we talk about something like vaccines uh, currently. And the reality is he has not been able to unite the country, but that's not something that uh, he was probably even capable of doing despite promising uh, that he would because of just where things are currently
2: uniting the country is one thing, but I wonder if there's also a question um, of whether Biden can even unite his own party. And Phil, I wonder if you can you can address this, because one of the biggest issues that has emerged is like whether or not Americans will have access to voting rights, whether or not the, a person voting in Georgia has the same freedoms as somebody doing the same thing in, in Pennsylvania. And it seems like You know, if this is an existential issue for the for the Democratic Party, for Biden's party, it's something that he's been unable to muster through. And I wonder I wonder if if it is even possible in the next year, again, putting looking into that crystal ball for Biden to make progress on this, for Congress to make
3: progress on this, what what Biden has to do in order to push that through. I mean, not, not to be overly cynical, but I think uh, with all due cynicism, I mean, this is, you know, we, we the Biden administration barely got infrastructure spending, passed, right? I mean, it was, you know, that was a bipartisan effort negotiated with Republicans and it barely passed Congress. So yeah, I mean, I'm extremely skeptical. I mean, a lot of people point to the last time the Voting Rights Act was uh, re-upheld prior to it being gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013, you know, it was basically an, an, an overwhelming unanimous vote. I mean, no one had any issue with it. But now voting rights has become, again, very partisan, very polarized in large part because it is recognized by both parties as a way to influence the outcome of elections. We have this electorate now, which is very evenly divided 50-50. A lot of races come down to who actually shows up to the polls and the extent to which people are able to vote easily. Democrats feel with, I think, a lot of justification that they benefited last year from the broad expansion of the ability to vote by mail in particular, not of course, because there's any fraud or anything, but just because it made it easier for people to vote. People who, you know, work a job late at night, can't get away on a Tuesday. Now they can vote by mail made it easier for them. Republicans also recognize that that was beneficial to the Democrats. And so they're not eager. And we're seeing this in legislation in states like Georgia and Texas and Arizona. They're not eager to actually move forward with instantiating that and making it part of law and making it easier over the long term. And it's very much the case that federally Republicans are cognizant of that. They don't want to make it easier for Democrats to vote And, you know, from a raw political calculus standpoint, you understand why that is. From a standpoint of having 30 people participate in a a participatory democracy, you can see why that's also a a negative. Eugene, Kamala Harris has
2: specifically asked for voting rights to be put into her portfolio. And Stacey Abrams, one of Mm -hmm. the politicians who's pushed voting rights more, maybe, than anybody else, you know, in this nation over the last few years, is also running for governor. I wonder what this says about the future of Kamala Harris, maybe even this, the future of Stacey Abrams. I know that Stacey Abrams declared a week ago, so I'm asking you to look very far ahead in all of that stuff. But but does this have the potential to taint the legacy if, like Phil said, this, this impasse has no end?
0: Well, it appears that it already is tainting Biden's popularity with some people who Are on the left of him who voted for him in part with the hope that he would make uh, more progress than he currently has on voting rights. You know, you mentioned about the president's ability to unite his party. Uh, I think it's been overstated to some degree how divided the Democrats are, but he certainly is the object of criticism from those on the left because of a host of issues that. Biden and Harris promised to accomplish if they won that they haven't made significant progress on. And so regarding Harris specifically, as you asked, and certainly Abrams, whatever Harris does in the future will be determined in part by what she has been able to do As vice president, specifically regarding these issues that she campaigned on saying she would be able to advance, including voting rights, which as of now, uh, she has not made significant progress on, nor has the president himself.
2: Can you lean into? You said that you felt that the divisions had been overstated uh, a little bit, and that 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 runs counter to some of the things that other people have said. But I'm interested in that other in that other aspect. Like, what do you mean by divisions overstated? Do you think they'll all get it together in the end, or or what?
0: Well, I think when you look at some of the legislation that the Democrats have uh, wanted to move forward with, the reality is that the majority of Democrats in Congress have backed the president's goals and focus and and direction when it comes to what he wants to get past. I think we pay lots of attention to, of course, uh, Joe Manchin. We focus quite a bit on progressives in the Democratic Party who uh, sometimes do not fall in line with the president. But most Democrats are on the same page with him when it comes to moving
2: policy forward. Are you saying that we are inclined to cover conflict? What?
0: You know, there was something very interesting written very recently by one of our colleagues, Dana Milbank, in the opinion section about the motivations of media sometimes, especially those in the television world. And and conflict very often seems to direct how things are covered or shape how things are reported on. And I don't want to downplay the fact that the Democratic Party is a big tent when it comes to policies on the left. But I don't know that that big tent is a place that is as chaotic as sometimes coverage
2: suggests. Yeah, Phil, you write a lot about conflict and you make ready use of facts. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with Eugene, particularly when it comes to actual legislation, but I, I do think it's worth pointing out that you know, when Eugene says that the Democratic Party is a big tent party, he's absolutely right. I mean, it is it is defini- definitionally almost, uh, but certainly practically far more diverse than the Republican Party. And that actually institutes a real problem for the party because it means that you know, in a system where the Electoral College and the Senate both overweight rural states and in which the rural states are predominantly Dominantly white. The Republican Party, which is primarily a white party, uh, is able to have a fairly consistent pitch to white people across the United States that it doesn't have to sort of moderate and modify based on who they're talking to. The Democratic Party does. And so we saw this post-2020 tension where you had people who were representing states like Pennsylvania uh, or, or Ohio who were taking issue with people like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, who has a much more progressive, much more leftist view of politics. And that's a real tension with the Democratic Party. You're, you're absolutely right, Eugene, of course, that you know, this tends to get resolved in legislation and has been resolved in favor of the left, probably more than people might have assumed based on who Joe Biden was and his background. But this is a real tension for the Democratic Party moving forward. How do you have a party that is uh, representative of the diverse elements of its faction while at the same time? Being able to compete with the Republican Party, which is very specifically targeting white rural voters in a, in a system that rewards white, white rural voters more than uh, other people. I want to add to that. I
0: think one reason the Democratic Party or, you know, those left of center may look more divided now than ever, perhaps, is because the right appears to be more unified now than ever before, especially when it comes to their support for Trump. Right. So we I don't know if we've ever seen uh, a party fall in line with their most popular politician like we are currently seeing with the GOP and Donald Trump. There are people who criticize Joe Biden and the Democratic Party in ways that we perhaps would never see a Republican in Congress criticize Donald Trump. Now, you can argue, you know, Liz Cheney has uh, been critical. Adam Kinzinger has been critical, but not anywhere near in the numbers on the right that we still see on the left because of just where we are right now politically when it comes to the GOP and the Democratic Party. So I say all that to say, I think in part, the Democratic Party looks even more divided because the Republican Party is so unified.
2: I'm going to say three words that I'm sure both of you will readily agree, are not divisive at all. Defund the police. You know, you have George Floyd's family talking at the Democratic National Convention on one hand, and then you have a year later, I think it was Abigail Spanberger who said that defund the police cost some former House members their seats. And I I wonder how— a party and a president that seemed to wholeheartedly embrace at least the call to action about police reform or at least said the words about police reform, you know, gets past that moment where you have some of its own members saying that just this phrase, just this issue is going to cost them their seats.
3: I think both of you obviously want to talk about it, but Phil, can you uh, take a first shot at it? Sure, yeah. I mean, this is a fascinating debate that that goes to obviously what we're just talking about. And so, you know, there there are a few things that are overlaid here. One is the extent to which Democrats actually embraced the actual message of defund the police, which was much, much smaller in scale than I think is represented. Joe Biden, for example, never embraced defund the police as a concept. But that brings up the second issue, which is that it was very quickly spun by the right in particular as something that was representative of how Democrats broadly felt about policing. And of course, you know, there's a reason reason that elected officials always want the endorsement of police, it's because they want to be able to say, oh, I stand for public safety and so on and so forth. That's changed uh, to some extent over the course of the past seven years or so, you know, essentially since the advent of the Black Lives Matter movement. But it hasn't changed so robustly that it is, you know, now broadly for a mass electorate that you want to be standing against police officers. It is still the case that elected officials want to be seen as, as being supportive of law enforcement and vice versa. Uh, but then there's this broader question, which is, you know, the, the sort of the debate that has been raised by this Democratic consultant named David Shore is very smart does a lot of data analysis stuff. His argument is that by talking about things like defund the police, the Democrats are doing themselves a disservice because all it does is raises the salience of issues that most white voters... Uh, you know, it, it triggers them in the wrong direction, essentially. Now, I, I've had conversations with folks in which they point out that, you know, Shore's response to that, which can be oversimplified as being, hey, you know, don't talk about these issues of race, is essentially what the strategy has been for Democrats for a long time, to try and, you know, ignore this question and not talk about these issues, which basically then leaves the playing field for Republicans to define things in the way that they want to define them, which obviously, again, goes back to the second point that was made. And so there's a lot of conversation on the left about how you talk about this in a way that is actually politically beneficial. And so there's Ian Haney Lopez, who does a lot of, uh, as a political scientist who's You know, often sort of looped into the critical race theory movement. He has this assessment that essentially, if you talk about race through the lens of class, that maybe that's the way in which Democrats can benefit. But it's you know, it's very very difficult. You know, it is it is hard enough to run a political campaign and win, much less to think big picture about what the party broadly needs to do and to to, you know how to maintain a consistent message, particularly in the face of Fox News, One America News, Newsmax, which is constantly trying to do its best to position things in a way that's disadvantageous to the left.
2: When I talk to activists, demonstrators, to to everybody that flooded the streets in 2020 and and beyond, um, one of the things that enrages them the most, enrages them, is the fact that folks like Joe Biden co-opted the message, the mythology, the symbolism, that they said all the right things, had all the right words, but then you get to actually being in power And now it is, you know, infrastructure, you know, now it is the pandemic that matters. And now, like, all of these issues that were really important to Black people, people concerned with equity, Black women who put Joe Biden in office are sort of shunted to the side. And with the folks that I talked to, particularly in Georgia and, and some in Philly as well, like, there's a thought that this sort of betrayal, and I'm using that word very specifically, is something that Biden that Democrats that you know Kamala Harris, you know, won't necessarily be able to recover from. We wanted you to make something happen after the death of George Floyd, and you know, you kind of gave us infrastructure spending in Juneteenth. You know, is that something that becomes a, a hurdle that the Democratic Party can't get over, that Joe Biden can't get over?
0: You know, that remains to be seen. If the Democratic Party somehow is able to figure out how to make progress in this area before voters go to the polls this midterm then maybe he can hold on to some favorability and respect from these individuals who were hoping uh, that he would have made more progress by now than he has but it's very likely that he may not in part because as we mentioned before he is working with a congress that is incredibly divided on this issue and has its own constituents, the Republican Party, its own constituents to answer to and to advocate for in ways that go completely in the opposite direction of what these activists are asking for. You know, Biden, I think, has been consistent in communicating that he has to uh, lead a big country, an incredibly diverse country that I say this humbly, that I don't think most people are even really aware of uh, when it comes to diversity. The, The range of issues and values and priorities that exists among this country from sea to shining sea. And the president has to try to get as much support from all of these people as possible. And what that means is that individuals who find themselves on, for lack of a better word, the extremes of an issue do not have their uh, priorities often uh, pay the amounts of attention to that they, that they would like. Now, What that could mean, of course, for leaders is that these individuals do not show up in the same percentages and numbers that they may have in the past when they were more hopeful. But we, as I stated, don't know for sure uh, whether or not uh, Biden and Harris will be able to make progress in this area because there still is time to do something before the midterm elections of next year.
2: Phil, do you think the same animus or the same disappointment will have negative effects when it comes to voting rights? I mean, Eugene said very specifically, like, that police reform is something that there's not universal agreement on what should happen. But voting rights seems, at least for Democrats, to be something that everybody agrees on. Do you think those folks who are disappointed that Biden has not made significant or more than token progress on this will make them pay at the ballot box?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the fundamental question is the one that Eugene raised about voter motivation, right? I mean, the, the, the Democrats are already facing an uphill fight in 2022 just by virtue of the fact that the first midterm, you know, is often sort of a pullback response to the president. You know, that his, his the president's base comes out in presidential year and then is less enthusiastic because they've already won, in, you know, two years later. So that's already there's already a challenge that Democrats are going to face in terms of voter enthusiasm. But at the end of the day, no one, no one in this country is more aware of the fact that Joe Biden really needs to pass legislation than Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, right? Mitch McConnell has already stated he does. he's not even going to have a Republican legislative agenda in 2022, because his agenda is essentially the same one it was that he, you know, he admitted back in 2009, which is, you know, standing in opposition to the Democratic president. And it works for his party. I mean, that, you know, when your party is predicated largely on the idea that government is getting in the Way of things, no one's going to be like, "Hey, what's the government going to do for me?" Right? I mean, the impetus is in the other direction. So, so that again is advantageous to Republicans. They can simply be obstructive, and they can leverage the infighting that we see manifested by Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. You know, Manchin, of course, holding a seat that the Democrats you know, if, if this were an open election, that the Manchin weren't running for reelection in West Virginia, the Republicans would win it by 60 points probably, right? You know, so I mean, they're lucky to have Joe Manchin in that seat. But now, of course, they are beholden. Anything that they want to be able to do has to go through these two senators, Manchin and Sinema, essentially, you know, and the Republicans are not going to give them any votes. And so, yeah, I mean, do I think it's going to hurt them? It's certainly going it to help the Democrats next year. But I, it's also the case, I, I don't know if there's anything Joe Biden can do about it. And piggybacking on that, I wanted to circle back to something Philip said
0: earlier, One of the things I imagine that is frustrating for Biden and other Democrats when Democrats who were not successful being reelected blame them for embracing or defund the police or at least just blame them for the phrase defund the police. As we have reported numerous times, that's not a phrase or a Set list of policies that Biden has back. But what has happened is that the Republican and conservative media has been incredibly effective at labeling and aligning Biden and other Democrats uh, like him to this very controversial idea and worldview, even when they don't support it. And so I think often about how I feel like Biden and, and, and many people in the Democratic Party's biggest challenge uh, will be, quite frankly, what has been referred to as the conservative media complex. Uh, they are incredibly effective at disinformation and misrepresenting people that they do not align with in ways that the Democratic Party has not been effective at all uh, in uh, pushing back on or rebutting or just tackling in any way possible.
2: You spoke of a worldview not supported by fact. And I can't think of an easier softball to, to segue into another topic. Like I wonder if election fraud in particular is sort of the new rallying cry of the Republican Party that either are or, or the right, that either it is that Republicans win or that the elections were bogus and fraud and 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 rigged. You know, is is this here to stay? Is this sort of the way that our politics works from here on in?
0: It certainly seems like it. You know, I mean, I covered these elections earlier this year, just like the two of you. And it was notable that when Republicans won in races, including, you know, the governor's mansion in Virginia, we didn't hear Claims about election fraud from the GOP. They take their wins and uh, accept them as a truth and fact and a model of election integrity in ways that uh, don't seem to be the case when Democrats win. And so it does appear that the new normal will be
3: that if the GOP does not win, then something happened that was concerning. I think I think that's that's generally true. I mean, one of the one of the interesting examples from this year was actually the recall in California, where Larry Elder, who was the front-running Republican, had actually set up even prior to election day, he'd set up you know this website that was alleging fraud and basically claiming that the election had been tainted by fraud, even though the election hadn't been held yet. So he was ready to go. He's ready to go with that excuse. I mean, he ended up getting walloped, or rather, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom ended up beating the recall by a wide margin. So it wasn't really necessary. Uh, but it's important to remember that while Donald Trump elevated this idea of election fraud, these false claims that things were being tainted. He was building on decades of Republican rhetoric. I mean, George W. Bush, when he was president, he actually instituted uh, a program to try and, you know, dig out any claims of fraud. You know, this has been a, this has been something that's been asserted by the right for a long time. You know, one of the reasons for that certainly is because it makes it easier then to pass the sort of voting restrictions that we've seen. And, you know, at times, the Republicans have been very open about this, that, you know, by passing these new laws and restricting voting, it's going to be of political benefit to them. You know, that's not always explicitly stated, but it certainly is always an undercurrent. And so I think it will continue to be the case that people will, con- will allege that fraud had occurred, perhaps not to the extent that Donald Trump has embraced it, which obviously has this element of sort of self-soothing about how the fact, the, the fact that he lost, he doesn't want to have to come to terms with that. Uh, but there are, you know, Republicans will, I think, continue to elevate these claims because it it's beneficial for them and makes it easier for them to pass legislation that makes it easier for them to win elections down the road. I feel like you can't say Donald Trump
2: without going down the path of Donald Trump and thinking about 2024. Eugene, do you have a sense of what kind of impact Donald Trump is having on the race? Is he freezing particular candidates? Is he elevating certain issues? Is he successfully casting stones? Is he fading into obsolescence? Like where where is Donald Trump in 2021 and 2022?
0: Well, he certainly isn't fading. We have seen with some of his endorsements already of congressional candidates and others seeking political office next year that he has appeared to be able to scare some people out of certain races or move them into other races because, as polling has suggested, he remains the most popular politician in the Republican Party. And there are individuals who will make their decisions next year based on what he says. And so he appears to be attempting to set up uh, some type of infrastructure in Washington, D.C. and state capitals across the country that will favor him uh, long run, perhaps, when it comes to his ideas and policies and desire even to be in positions of power that perhaps could lead to an outcome that would have been more favorable or will be more favorable to him in the future in a way that he wishes would have favored him in 2020. And I think there are people across the right who are paying close attention to this, who notice this and are responding accordingly. Even during the recording of this podcast, there is a former lawmaker who launched her upcoming congressional race on Twitter while we were talking, who in her Twitter announcement put hashtag Trump, hashtag make America great again to announce that that is what uh, she is about, because Donald Trump continues to be more influential now in the GOP than perhaps any other moment before now.
2: I wonder if, and I'm going to be a little contrarian today, um, I wonder if A counterpoint to that is Glenn Youngkin, right? He just became governor of Virginia. He did it by running a race in which he sort of distanced himself from Donald Trump and leaned into other social, cultural issues, and he won. And I'm not entirely disagreeing with Eugene, but Phil, I wonder, not if you can play tiebreaker, but I wonder if there is a model going forward in which a Republican does not have to, you know, have the stamp of approval from Donald Trump.
0: Can I ask both of you all a question related to that? Do you all think every state has a Glenn Youngkin?
3: Yeah. I mean, honestly, yes. Just because Glenn Youngkin was just sort of this came out of nowhere business guy who was able to sort of put together a pastiche of ideas that appealed to folks, right? I mean, there's nothing particularly special about him. And in that sense, because there's nothing special about him, I think that, yeah, probably a lot of states do have Glenn Youngkin types. Yeah. You know, I mean, to your point, Cleve, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things there, there, there are two politicians I'd point to here. One is Youngkin, in part because he did show that people will turn out, Republicans will turn out, you know, in part because they're angry at Democrats, in part because they're still by Fox News and these claims of critical race theory being taught in schools. You know, it, it, of course, that's not just specific to Virginia. We saw similar in New Jersey. There was a similar pullback from the 2020 results there as well. But it showed that Republicans can turn out and vote even when Trump isn't on the ballot. And I think that was a real question, because in 2018, the Republicans got absolutely demolished and Trump wasn't on the ballot. And I, for one, was like, well, maybe this is just because Trump only pulls out Trump voters when Trump was on the ballot. That appears not to be the case, at least based on what happened in Virginia and New Jersey. But the other elected official here I think we have sort of been talking about without actually mentioning him is Ron DeSantis in Florida. And one of the things that DeSantis has done that I think is very, very smart for him politically is that he has taken the tenets of MAGAism, this sort of anti-elitism, anti-leftism, you know, this, this pitch of people being empowered to be, be who they want to be, and he's removed it from Trump. So Trump ran on the same idea. I'm running against the establishment. I'm, run, I'm an outsider. I'm running against the elites. You know, I'm letting you get back to the Real America, you know, enough of this politically correctness, yada yada yada. DeSantis has taken that; he's removed the Trumpism from it and sort of applied the same idea to the coronavirus and the pandemic. You know that we're not going to listen to the elites. You don't have to wear your masks. That's ridiculous. I'm going to let you be your own people. I'm not going to tell you to mix vaccines, yada yada yada. He's shown a a way in which that same sort of pattern of political rhetoric, even without the specifics, can be applied to other issues and be applied outside of Donald Trump. I think if I'm Donald Trump and I'm actually thinking about 2024, you know, I'm looking at Ron DeSantis. And thinking, okay, this is the guy, at this point at least, that I'm most concerned about.
2: Do you believe, Phil, that there can be Trumpism without Trump? Like, do you believe I understand that it is Ron DeSantis' strategy, but do you believe that that is something that can be duplicated across the country in a way that wins for Republicans?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that Youngkin did, you know, you said that he sort of stood apart from Trump, which is sort of true, but, you know, as I think we all know, he also made these very sort of backdoor, quiet appeals to Trump's space. you know, going on Steve Bannon's podcast, things along those lines. You know, those are very conscientious efforts to try and make sure that that base of voters is still ginned up. And so, you know, I mean, there can't be Trumpism as such without Trump, because obviously, you know, that word Trump is in there for a reason. But I think there can be the same sorts of similar appeals the same sort of cultural warfare, the same sort of, you know, stoking of partisan resentments and class resentments that Trump really leveraged. You know, I I remain convinced to this day that the reason Donald Trump was president was not because of Trump, but because he was echoing back to the conservative base what they're hearing on Fox News and at Breitbart, right? I mean, he was the guy who's, he was just willing to say these things that they read on Breitbart and read on Fox News. Republicans then therefore viewed him as being a truth teller because he was saying the things they heard on these conservative media uh, outlets. You know, Donald Trump has never been particularly bold he always wants to be liked. And that's sort of his guiding philosophy. But he was willing to say things that establishment Republicans wouldn't because they viewed him as toxic when Donald Trump revealed that they weren't toxic. And I think that that secret sauce, which I think was very, very important to who he was and his success, I think that's replicable.
0: You know, I wonder uh, a few things. One, I'm so glad Philip Philip noted that I, I do think in general, the idea that Glenn Youngkin did not campaign with Trump it's like just kind of true. I mean, we know there was a phone call during a tele-rally where Trump did speak in favor of Yankin. And I do think I that matters. But I hope Glenn gets in there and he'll straighten out Virginia, he'll lower taxes, do all of the things that we want a governor to do. I don't know that you're going to see success in the GOP without Trump's blessing, because we haven't really seen it at at that level yet, even in this case. I also wonder if Trump is going to be consistent enough uh, to just put the Yankin model in place, leaving people to believe uh, that he, people are being elected in the GOP without his support. We We know that this is a politician who cares a lot about what people think about him and his power and his influence. And so it has been said by some people, can Trump not be as Trumpy in the future if that ultimately benefits the GOP. And I guess I guess that remains to be seen. And it also remains to be seen. I I quite frankly think that Virginia is a different place uh, from Mississippi and Alabama. And a statewide race here is very different from some congressional district races in other places of this country. Um, and there are some voters who will want someone more vocally and obviously Trumpier than Yunkin. And I think that could prevent uh, the GOP from having some long-term successes because there may be more voters in general in those places who oppose someone that's uh, Trumpy, representing them in 2024 and moving forward.
2: I really like the number of words in the English language that have Trump as a root, Trumpism, Trumpy, <laughs> Trumptastic might be next. I don't know. I don't know what, what comes to that we're 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 getting near the end of the time of our time but i i do want to ask you guys a question that harkens back to where we started feel free to be pithy or short but i wonder because we're either writing uh, or, or doing this from a socially distant newsroom or a closet or a quiet bedroom where phil's kids have not interrupted if you guys think that well, no, not even if, but what do you think Joe Biden has to do to get more people to take the vaccine to sort of end this pandemic? Or if you think it's even possible, Phil, I'll I'll start I'll start with you because you look skeptical.
3: Yeah, I mean, I just I don't know. I mean, the, the, the two times recently that we've seen actual, you know, measurable surges in vaccine uptake that are not related to, you know, it being expanded to a new population like kids or or boosters was the emergence of the two variants, right? When Delta emerged, the places that were hardest hit by Delta saw these big short-term surges in vaccination. We've just recently with Omicron, we've seen a surge in in vaccination uptake. You know, that's not ideal. We don't want to have to wait until (laughs) there's some dangerous new variant before everyone gets vaccinated, but it has been repeatedly, and you know, it is, it is, in the same way that climate change evolved over the course of you know 2006 to 2012 from a thing that people are broadly talking about in the scientific context to a very deeply embedded part of the partisan warfare, we're seeing vaccinations go down that same path. If it's not already at that that same endpoint, and if that's the case, Joe Biden's not going to make any difference. You know, when we have two to one the people who are unvaccinated are Republican versus Democratic, Joe Biden's not going to convince those Republicans to get vaccinated. You know, maybe a mandate can do something. We'll you know we'll see what mandates look like particularly as the winter progresses and maybe things get worse. But I, I don't know if there's anything you can do. So,
2: Phil, you're on team pajamas indefinitely. Eugene, how do you how do you feel? Is it that hopeless? Is it that bleak?
0: You know, I have heard a few medical experts who uh, study this issue more closely than I conclude that nearly everyone who is going to get vaccinated has been vaccinated at this point. But it is my belief that if more people get vaccinated at this point... It will not be because of the advice of Joe Biden. People will be making decisions moving forward based on their relationships uh, with other individuals who they actually have more confidence in, or who they trust, or who they uh, believe could be, you know, negatively affected by, you know, their actions uh, when it comes to the vaccine. It is fascinating. I think this is a completely different conversation, but it's quite fascinating listening to people and talking to voters. And thinking about who has authority and influence and trust in various people's lives when it comes to this type of situation. And, and unsurprisingly to either of you, for many people, it, it's not the government and it's not even the medical community. It's, it's
2: the relationships
0: with the people closest to them.
2: All right. Well... Philip Bump from Your Bedroom Uninterrupted by Children and Eugene Scott from an undisclosed location wearing pajamas. Thanks so much for uh, joining me in this conversation. I'm Cleve Woodson wearing a tie and pajama bottoms at The Washington Post. Let's do this again sometimes.
3: We'd love to. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? Last week, I heard from so many of you about what you liked and didn't like about last week's show. And I want to hear from you again. Do you guys like this format? Do you like the roundtable? Do you want to hear something different, something more? You can reach me by email at allison.michaels at Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Sharla Freeland with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon.